Let me add my welcome to Marcos. It's great to have you with us this morning. If this is your first time, uh, then a very warm welcome to you and a happy new year to all of you. I know you were cheating when Marco got you to read the verse out because you're just reading it off the fridge magnet anyway, weren't you? But um, hopefully those will be uh, a help to you in learning that verse. Well, like Marco said, we've been working our way through the book of Romans and the first uh, four chapters of the book of Romans have been Paul articulating to us that at the centre of the gospel is this message of justification by faith. The gospel that that the big news, the good news, God's news, has at its centre justification by faith. This reality that by an action of faith alone, an empty hand that receives it, we are declared to be in the right by God through his son, the Lord Jesus. So that God transfers or imputes our sinfulness to the Lord Jesus and he gifts us clothes us in his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, so that by faith we are saved. We are seen by God as being in the right. Now, now for four chapters, Paul has been telling you that's right at the heart of the news that God wants you to know. So if you didn't know that before, this is the heart of the news that God wants you to know, that you can be in the right before God by faith because of what Christ has done to justify us through his death on the cross. And now in Romans chapter 5, what Paul is essentially beginning to do is put justification by faith to the test. Think about it like this, if you like. Uh, Imagine that Romans 1 to 4 are a description of a car, a car called justification by faith, if you like. Romans 5, then, is the road test of that car. Romans 5 is us getting behind the wheel and getting to take it for a test, you know, in the neighbourhood, at work. But it's not one of those kind of half-hearted road tests a little uh, poodle round the block, never getting out of third gear like your granny might do. No, this is Paul taking it to the limit, right up to the limits of the revs, getting its maximum speed, seeing what it does over the lumps and bumps of real life, of sin and suffering and even death itself. And let me say right at the beginning as we start out that that kind of road test is, is really, really important. The truth is, I think, that much of the philosophy of our day is horribly weak in the face of real life. If you would consider yourself a young person this morning, which I think is probably uh, most of us, isn't it? We would consider ourselves to be young. You've probably heard, haven't you, that the the rule of life is be the best version of you. Sounds like solid advice, doesn't it? But the truth is, the big problem in life is that we just can't do that. Uh, C.S. Lewis observed that the history of the world is not so much the history of really bad people doing really evil things, but the history of seemingly quite good people finding themselves incapable of doing the good they know they should. We can't be the best version of us. Uh, Maybe you're a bit older and the the capitalist dream has got you. You know, work hard, dream big, achieve your goals. And maybe it's working for you, but what you need to know is that as a philosophy, as you test it out in a road test of real life, it will stumble and stall at the first sign of sickness and injustice. It grinds to a halt when asked to bring comfort at the funeral of a gifted teenager. It can't cope with the fact that some of the hardest working people in the world die in poverty with barely enough food. You see, the truth is that lots of our philosophies in life are like the the Tesla truck. Do you remember the test that Elon Musk did on the Tesla truck? Uh, He said that the windows were bulletproof and he threw a ball bearing at them and they all smashed. Well, so it is with much of the stuff we're told to believe. You throw real life at it, 
and it smashes to pieces. But what about justification by faith? If justification by faith is the centre of what God wants us to know, the centre of his good news, how does it cope with some of the big things in life? Well, let's take the first one. Ongoing sin. Ongoing sin. This is what lies behind the opening verse of chapter 5. It's all very well saying that you have been justified by faith. You might even believe that you have been justified by faith. But the question is, can you still believe it when you still sin? When even as a a professing, card-carrying, baptised church member, you still do, I still do, dumb, irrational, sinful things. Perhaps you lose your temper. Perhaps you think lustful thoughts. Perhaps you get lost in self-obsessed vanity. Perhaps you tell lies. Don't miss the force of this test, the weight of it. I think this is perhaps one of the hardest things of all. Can the gospel still be true when those who believe it, those who teach it, still sin? Lots of people give up on church because they have not understood the answer to this question. What does Paul say? Verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice this carefully. Look down at the verse. Paul doesn't say that since we've been justified by faith, it is possible for us to have peace with God. It is possible to have peace with God through justification by faith as long as you meet an ongoing moral standard. It doesn't say that, does it? Nor does it say that we will at some point in the future have peace with God. Because you've been justified by faith, you will at some point in the future, in a sinless perfection of glory, then you will have peace with God. No, he doesn't say that either, does he? No, and I know I'm labouring it, but notice the peace is at present tense. We have, right now, we have, in this moment, peace with the God who made us. And this peace is not meant to just be an idea or a theory. It's meant to be a lived reality. The passage goes on to say how we will experience this peace, both in suffering, which we'll talk about in a moment, but also that this peace comes from the pouring out of God's love into our hearts in verse 5. I don't have time to go through it all, but I think really uh, the pouring out into our hearts of God's love is really another description of justification by faith, how how it's experienced from our end. We don't have time to go into that in detail, but I, I want you to notice that justification by faith defeats ongoing sin Because it means that, by definition, in this moment, regardless of my moral performance, even in the very moment of my sin, I am in Christ at peace with God. Literally, the eyes of the one who made me, the sovereign, holy ruler over all things, his eyes look on me and smile because I'm in Christ. I'm clothed in his righteousness and bereft of my sin, And that piece is supposed to be real and tangible and mine. Now that means, doesn't it, as I begin to understand and grasp what God has done for me in Christ, what justification means in the face of my ongoing sin, I'm I'm liberated from fear. I don't need to be anxious. We'll see in Romans chapter 6 in a few weeks' time that I realise also I don't want to sin and I don't need to sin. Because in an act of God, outside of my actions, grasped by faith and not works, I am declared to be at peace with God. Now, we find this really hard to grasp because, of course, it means that our relationship with God is unlike any other relationship we have. In any other relationship, the peace in the relationship in the moment is founded on our current moral performance. You know that, don't you? 
You know, your experience of peace with your parents is founded on your current moral performance. You will not experience peace with your parents if you leave your room in a mess or you throw your dinner across the table. Or if you're married and you are rude to your spouse or inconsiderate, you will not know peace. It's the same with friendships. If you show a lack of care, if you ignore them or you ghost them, then peace will vanish. And it's right, it's how it should be. But peace with God operates differently. Not because God doesn't discipline us, we'll come to think about that in a moment, but rather this peace is ours for the very reason that God is God and not a man. And justification by faith is an action so glorious and so wonderful, it's only possible by God. It's an action that makes peace with him a constant in our lives because it's secured for us in Christ through justification by faith. We have peace with God even in the face of ongoing sin. Second test, suffering. Suffering. Um, I know I said the first test was the big one, but I think this is also pretty big, isn't it? You know, if justification by faith is so brilliant, if, if Steve, you're saying this is, this is the centre of what God wants you to know, if it's the centre of the gospel, if this is the guiding principle for understanding how God is at work in the world, then what on earth does it have to say in the face of my suffering? Suffering in our world. Well, remarkably, Paul says it can bring joy. Look down at verses 3 and 5, and let me, uh, 3 to 5, let me read those to you again. Pick it up at the end of verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Just look really carefully at those verses. They say something that you will not believe unless you notice it and see it for yourselves. There are parallel statements there. End of verse 2, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then verse 3, parallel to it, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now the word here for rejoice is literally boast. It's more often translated boast in our New Testaments. And Paul's point is not a sort of gleeful, you know, unplug your brain, bizarre happiness. It's not saying that. It's more a settled gladness, a joy. Uh, I'm pleased with this. I'm satisfied with this. I will speak this up. And the parallel statements work to explain one another. So justification by faith means that we can uh, rejoice in, boast in, be pleased with, speak up, hope. Hope. Hope of the glory of God, he says. We can we can rejoice in a future day when we will see the Lord. But also, and parallel to that, we can in the same way, in a parallel way, boast in, be pleased with, rejoice in suffering. Our suffering. Now, of course, Paul doesn't mean that we like suffering or that we take some kind of masochistic pleasure in pain. The New Testament is really clear that suffering is not pleasant. I think the mistake I've made with this passage before, don't make the mistake I've made with this before, of adding that qualification so quickly that you miss Paul's actual point. His actual point is not that the Christian can rejoice despite their suffering, or even that they can rejoice in the midst of their suffering because they have some kind of higher source of joy, which means that they, they sort of float above their suffering. He's not saying that. Rather, it is... And this is amazing, isn't it? It is in the sufferings themselves, in a parallel way to in hope, in the sufferings themselves that the Christian is rejoicing. Why? Why? How? Why would that be true? Well, verse 3. 
because suffering produces endurance. Now, we know this, don't we? Suffering proves to us, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that we need the Lord. Now, when life is easy, we are tempted to think that we can get along quite well on our own, thank you very much. But you can't think like that when you're suffering. When you're suffering, you know you need the Lord. We're drawn to spend more time with him than we would otherwise. When we're suffering, we pray with an earnestness and a seriousness that escapes us most of the time. Now, of course, if you're not a Christian, if you've not experienced justification by faith, suffering like this will drive you from the Lord. It may conclude that he doesn't love you, he doesn't care about you. But if we know the Lord, if we have peace with God through justification by faith, then suffering drives us to him. Learning not just God's steadfastness, but also at the same time learning all the ways that we've been tempted to overestimate ourselves. Wrongly thinking that we're quite courageous, quite strong, quite good. And learning that we're not is good for us. Because suffering pushes the Christian into the Lord for endurance, and then it also produces what he calls character. Character. Now, slow down here again and notice this word. I I think sometimes when we read it, we we read it as sort of characteristics, as if the joy in suffering is that it it teaches you some kind of virtuous characteristics. Do do you know the idea that, you know, if I'm suffering, I'll I'll somehow be be taught to be more patient, uh, kinder, gentler, maybe those sorts of things. Maybe even teach you some kind of important moral lesson. I know that you think like that. I know that I am tempted to think like that because I've heard some of you say, when you are suffering, you know, if only I can learn the lesson real quick, then God will take the suffering away. But that's not Paul's point here. The word character here means something a little bit more like provenness, proof. Proof that faith is real. Like the good soil in Jesus' parable, if you remember that, that that grows and grows and grows. Enduring faith produces a kind of provenness of the reality of faith, demonstrating that it springs not from our own strength, but from God's work in us. And that provenness, that character, in turn produces hope. Obviously, because its enduring character shows that it's from the Lord, so that the hope that it hopes in, it grows stronger and stronger. We've come full circle, haven't we? This is the hope that we began with at the end of verse 2, that the hope of the glory of God. So rejoicing in hope of the glory of God is the same as rejoicing in sufferings. They're, They're two sides of the same coin because we hope for what we do not have. And the absence of our hope is the cause of our suffering. I want you just to see with me that this is so much richer than sort of stoicism. You know what stoicism is? That idea that you know, we'll just bash through suffering. You know, just hold our breath until it's all over. We'll get through it. Stiff upper lip kind of thing. There's lots of stoicism in the world. It's remarkable when you see it, isn't it? Lots of people cope with lots of things, and it's incredible. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Justification by faith does not produce stoicism. Rather, justification by faith enables us to rejoice, even in the sufferings themselves, because we are glad to grow in endurance, character, and hope. Now, if you're thinking about what I'm saying here, and you're looking down at Romans 5, thinking, this is incredible. Has Paul lost his mind? Well, let me just read to you some cross-references. You can turn to them if you like, 
or you can just scribble them down and look at them later. But let me prove to you that this is not just Paul talking here. Jesus says the same thing. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 to 12. This is what Jesus says. Blessed, happy are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Same idea. Again, uh, look across at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 9 to 13. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, that is our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And that's true, it's important, isn't it? But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Just over a few pages, James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, of course, you will have to work this out for yourself personally, and there's some time to think, isn't there, that you probably need to take this week to, to ponder on that. But let me try and speak for myself personally, if I can, and hopefully in a way which is helpful to you. I think that uh, one of the mistakes that perhaps I've made over the years is, is not really talking about this enough. What I mean is I don't think that I've always managed to communicate to you guys clearly enough how church life involves, necessarily involves, happily involves suffering, or how personally costly that is for me or for other leaders in the church. I know that the pa- it's possible for pastors to bellyache as if their lives are harder than anybody else's, and I don't want to do that, and I've not wanted to do that. I know that many of you have experienced suffering way beyond my own experience, but at the same time, I think I've thought sometimes that good pastoring is like by being stoic, which gives the false impression that church life and ministry should be or could be easy. But the truth is that God, in his wisdom, has taken our church and me personally through all different kinds of suffering to produce these sorts of things that Romans 5 is talking about. I don't know whether you uh, remember the time when we had to walk to church through protests on Minehead Road. Maybe you've forgotten about it. had to walk through uh, posters which questioned my integrity, your pastor is a liar, he'd say. Now, you perhaps didn't think very much of that at the time, but I would receive regular hate emails from the people on that street. One of the local residents would, would wait to meet me on my way into church, sort of hesitating so that she could make sure that she saw me on my way in to have a go at me. So much so, and I don't think I told you at the time, but I would spend early mornings on Sunday just praying that God would give me the courage to walk into church. That's pathetic, isn't it, really, when you think about it? Humbling. What about when Nathan died? One of our founding elders died from cancer as a young man. 
I know we were all heartbroken, weren't we? But I remember the funeral, and it was through tear-soaked grief and a broken heart that I preached over the coffin of a friend of resurrection hope. I wasn't even sure I'd make it through when I started out. It's humbling. It makes you feel weak. I think, too, of the fact that as a church you've become very familiar with my shortcomings and my failings. And they've become, at times, topics for conversation. Not because they're worse than anyone else's, I don't think, but because they impact the church in, in ways that I wish they probably didn't. And let me tell you, that's really humbling. It's a kind of suffering. Now, I'll stop there, but my point is that despite all the pain of all of those things, my experience is that justification by faith has more than met all of those challenges. So much so that I can say now, listen, without a word of a lie, without any kind of stoical bravery, there's no bravery here, I am glad that all of those things happened. I'm glad. I rejoice. Not because I've learned some great moral lesson through them, although I hope I have learned a thing or two, but because, because of them, I can stand here this morning and say to you with greater clarity than maybe I've said before, with a stronger conviction than I've said before, listen, the Lord alone is my hope and my help. That God in Christ has done something in me that I know I don't deserve, I know I can never pay back, and I know I can never shake off. And amazingly, my experience is, and Romans 5 teaches me, that that grows the fastest when the times are hardest. Now listen, if you're a Christian this morning, this is true for you too. You can, by God's grace, rejoice that you got sick, that your job didn't work out, that your family is a mess, that you didn't get the things that you dreamed of and have lost people who are precious and close to you. Not because you love the pain, That would be weird, wouldn't it? It's not that. Not even because you think you've become a better person through all of them. Not that either. But because of all of those pains, what you can see today with greater clarity is the preciousness of the Lord Jesus, who is more solid and more glorious than anything else in all the world. That because of our sufferings, we are more sure that the problems in our lives will only ever be solved by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not our money, not our wisdom, not our skill, not our friends, not our family, not our jobs, not our money or our treasure. None of those things will solve our problems. Christ alone. And the greater clarity with which you see that, the greater your hope in Christ will be. And you'll be able to rejoice. That's suffering. Third and final test, death death. We thought it was pretty morbid and serious before. We're going to talk about death now. How does justification by faith face death? Well, this, I think, is what Paul is getting at in our verse of the year, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, This is one of those uh, greater to lesser arguments. Okay, so if you can prove the greater thing, then the lesser thing will fall over at the same time. You know, if you can prove that the world is round, which it is, in case you're wondering, if you can prove that the world is round, then the lesser thing that that globe is spinning also falls over at the same time. And here the greater thing is thinking about the magnitude of God's love for us whilst he did the big thing for us of saving us. Do you notice that? 
the magnitude of what God did for us while we're still sinners. So remember that, that sinners here are not people who just do a few things wrong or make a few mistakes. Sinners are in Romans, aren't they? We've learned this over the weeks. Sinners are people who ignore God. They know God is there, but they ignore him. We live our lives, the life that he gave us, the, the breath that he gives us, we use even to breathe out murderous, angry threats against the God who made us. We live our lives for our own glory. We are rebels, traitors. We are anti-God and anti-human. And Paul says that it is whilst we are in that state, God loved us and Christ died for us. It's underlined in verse 7 with this idea that people might consider dying for a righteous person. You might die for someone who is in the right. You might die for justice. You might know of people who've done that. You might dare to die for a good person, a person you know to be good or, or noble or kind. You might die in both of those situations, but literally nobody... Nobody would choose to give their life up for someone who hated them and spent all of their existence in active rebellion against them. Except who? Verse 8. That's exactly what God in Christ did for you and me. That's the extent of his love. He would do the inhumanly divine thing and give his life for us while we're still sinners. It's worth just pausing on this word love, isn't it? It comes a couple of times in our passage this morning. It's there in verse 5. And it's here again in verse 8. And I hope you can see that Paul's point here is that God's love is the, is the foundation of his, ac uh, of his action and the function of his character. Yeah, so it's the foundation of what God does and it's the, the function of who God is. What, what I mean is that God's love is not a response to loveliness. That's what you and I mean when we say we love something, don't we? Uh, we love things and lovely things. We love lovely people. We love chocolate, we love peanut butter, we love brown paper packages wrapped up with string, we love cute animals, beautiful people, adorable children, nice friends. But God's love is not like that, is it? Notice God's love is in him, so much so that it's not drawn out by the loveliness of humanity. It's not that God sees something lovely in us and is drawn out to love us. It's not that, is it? Instead, actually, his love comes out of him by his promise or his desire to act. God commits himself in promises to act in history, and because of the character of God and who he is, it comes out as love, because that's who God is. And notice that that love is immovable and unshakable and can't be undone by us. It's brilliant, isn't it? If God loved us because we were lovely, if somehow he discovered that we were unlovely, then his love would be undone. But it's not like that at all, is it? And this love is not sparingly dabbed or daubed on us, is it? It is poured into our hearts, verse 5. So that by the power of the indwelling spirit, we are overwhelmed internally by the love of God for us, bowled over by it. And it's this love, love for the unlovely, which is the foundation of our forgiveness. And if, and if you can say this is true, if you can say, listen, God promises to act in saving power in history, to save unlovely people as a function of his love. Now having saved and transformed them and clothed them in Christ's righteousness so that they stand before him as completely pure and perfect, don't you think he will save them in the face of death and eternity? Of course he will. Of course he will. Saved from the wrath of God, as he puts it in verse 9, or saved by his life in verse 10. Yeah, think about it like this. Imagine that you've restored a vintage car. You've spent hours and hours 
you know, pouring over the details with great pain and sweat. All of your savings have gone into it. And then you, you sit in it to drive it for the first time. Are you deliberately going to put it into the garage wall? Of course you're not. It'd be an act of madness, wouldn't it? And so with the Lord, having justified us by faith, while we were wretched, undeserving sinners, do you think he will abandon you at the final call? That moment when you take your final breath, will he leave you? Oh, forget that. Of course he won't. How could he? It would be denial of justification by faith. It would be a denial of the love that pours out from him. So justification defeats death. So here's the three truths. Justification by faith brings unshakable peace in the face of ongoing sin. Praise the Lord for that. It brings joy in the face of suffering and a certain hope in the face of death. Let's take a few moments to think on, ponder on those things, and I will pray for us. Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much for the way that justification by faith in Christ meets all these great challenges of our lives and our world. Thank you that our standing before you is not threatened by our weakness and ongoing battle with sin. Thank you that we have in our hands peace with you today because of what Christ has done. Thank you even, Lord, that not only do you sustain us in the face of suffering, but that you bring us joy even in it as we see what you're doing through it in our lives, stripping us of all other hopes and confidences. And Lord, thank you for the certain hope that we can have in the face of death. That if you loved us while we were still sinners, how much more will you save us from your judgment to come? Thank you that nothing can separate us from your love in the Lord Jesus Christ. Imprint these truths on our hearts, we pray. May they not just be ideas or thoughts that we thought about this morning, but may they be guiding truths of our lives this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing in response to what we've heard from God's word. He